0: Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com/donate. When you throw even ten bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just twenty bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in fifty bucks, and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. OperaBoxScore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble!
0: Wherever you are, however you're listening, Hey, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cederquist. Thanks for taking a road trip with the OBS team this summer. This is our last pre-recorded show because next week we're back in Chicago and we'll be live once more right here on WNURFM. Creative consultant Oliver Camacho joins me next week and Tobias Wright shows up the week after that on August 14th. You've been warned. Now, you can still have your voice heard. Leave us a voicemail on 224-218-9BOX. That's 224-218-9269. Tweet us at Opera Box Score or write to us via Facebook or at Gmail.com. All right. Do you know where Petoskey, Michigan is? Well, you will soon enough. This week, I go inside the huddle with Chris Ludva, the artistic director of the Bayview Music Festival, the longest continuously operating chamber music festival in the United States, which is in northern Michigan. We talk about that unique place that is Bayview, why this festival's pay-to-sing program is different from the others, and what the less glamorous parts are of running a summer music festival. Then at 9.30, it's Chalk Talk, Australian comedian Jim Jeffries was on the podcast from the Nerdist platform last week talking about his career including his school days training as a singer and boy did he have some choice words about opera you'll hear that clip plus my take on it and but of course you get all your opera headlines and our hot takes on them in the two-minute drill fantastic show for you tonight It's been funny being on the road here and pre-recording these shows and then releasing them in our normal time slot. I'm not going to say I hated it. I'm just going to say that I love live radio more. And I love having my boys and my girl, Dinah Fisher, Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright. I like having them in the studio. So it's going to be good to get back. We're going to do the rest of the summer in studio WNUR. And then it's fall, third season of the OBS starts in the fall man crazy almost as crazy as the cubs finally getting above 500 this season for a long stretch of time and they are also leading the nl central now look i think we all know that the nl central is not the strongest of major league baseball's divisions it's great that the cubs are finally above 500 and look all we want is cub fans this year despite another Championship, which I think is extremely unlikely. You've heard me talk about how hard it is to repeat in baseball, NFL as well. All we want to do is just go to the playoffs again. Don't want to miss the playoffs. The Bears, however, these guys keep fumbling snaps literally. Mitchell Trubisky is the quarterback for the Bears that was drafted in the first round, but is the third string QB. This is like only the third time this has happened since 2000 in the NFL, where a team gets a first-round pick at the QB position, and that is not the starter for the season. The Bears cannot do anything right, apart from getting rid of Jay Cutler. That was a good thing. Beyond that, I'm not saying that Trubisky is a great quarterback. All I'm saying is that they are not playing the situation right. They got some time to figure it out during the month of August. There are going to be a lot of changes. Probably not. Mark Sanchez, by the way, is the second-string QB. Remember Mark Sanchez from USC? He was playing for the mm, Cardinals, I think it was. Now he's in Chicago. Super quick, before we get to the show, I cannot stop talking about this movie, Dunkirk. Have you seen Dunkirk yet? If you listen to this show, you know that I literally see less than one movie a year. I happened to be in northern Michigan this summer, got to see a couple movies, Uh, three in total and the last one i saw dunkirk by far the best christopher nolan directing it from the batman franchise kenneth Branagh is in it mark rylance tom hardy do yourself a favor see this film this is not your typical war film go see this movie all right let's talk some opera
1: huddle up let's go inside the huddle
0: Hey, thanks for joining us tonight. We've got a great show for you. Lots of business to take care of, lots of opera to talk about. I'm going to start with my guest this evening. Chris Ludva has been the Artistic Director of the Bayview Music Festival, the longest continuously operating chamber music festival in the United States since 2007. The festival serves college and postgraduate students year after year who seek additional training, perspective, and the inspiration needed to pursue a career in the arts. Livva is the new assistant professor of music at Kalamazoo College in Michigan. Prior to his appointment, he served as director of performing arts and ensembles for the Cuyahoga Community College in Cleveland, Ohio. Ten years as artistic director of Encore Vocal Arts in Indianapolis, the conductor of Bloomington Pops, Bloomington Symphony. Chris, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's kind of amazing that you and I actually even get along. We met in 2011 for the first time. I, of course, am a huge Chicago Cubs fan. You, sadly, are a Cleveland Indians fan.
2: Former, because now we're moving to Kalamazoo, and there's no major league team there for you to, be, to have any sort of a beef with. So we're good now. This is why this interview is going to work out really well.
0: There, there's got to be some sort of, like, double-A farm team or something. Oh, yeah, no
2: doubt. But I don't think there are any threat to the, anything in Chicago. That's the good news.
0: When, when we were talking on the phone earlier this year and setting up all the details for me to come to Bayview this summer, the Cubs and the Indians were in the middle of epic- A brutal,
2: <laughs> brutal down, drag out fight, the epic... The brutal knockdown, drag-out fight, which we did not win at.
0: And the funny thing was, if you watch that series on TV, all the fans that were there, literally nobody was having a good time.
2: <laughs> Everybody was in hell.
0: <laughs> it's so terrifying. Can you say hell on the radio? Yeah, you can say okay, hell. Okay, You can say hell. All right. Here we are, Bayview, Michigan. How do you describe this place to somebody who's never been here before?
2: Oh, wow, let's see. Well, it's, um, so we're on the northwest shore of lower Michigan, so maybe some of your listeners are more familiar with Door County if they go you know, north from Chicago into Wisconsin. Um, so we're just on the other side of the lake, kind of like the whole ball team thing, except, you know, you're on one side of the lake. We're on the, well, the other lake in that case, Lake Erie. But in this case, we're on Lake Michigan. Um, so you get the sunrise, we get the sunset. And uh, it's just a gorgeous uh, environment here. Bayview is a Chautauqua, which was a late 1800s movement toward creating intentional communities where people could go for um, cultural stimulation and learning and study and arts. And so we've been doing this for uh, over 100 years. Our main theater in which our operas are performed is 102 years old and on the historic register. So it's a really, really unique environment. And yet we're 50 feet from Lake Michigan and you can walk over there and cast a stone into the water or go sailing or whatever you want to do and and, and then turn around and go see great art here at any, at any given time. So it's really a it's a, an exquisite place to make music when so much of our art making happens in big cities, metropolitan areas to be able to do it out in the middle of nature is just, uh, it's really inspiring.
0: There's this beautiful natural side to this place that you've talked about. There's this beautiful architectural side oh, yeah. as well, right?
2: Yeah, the Bayview has 440 cottages. Uh, we call them cottages, but really they're more like enormous homes that rival or probably our first homes as artists. Um, but it's uh, some of the architecture is, is you know beautiful, turn-of-the-century Uh, Exquisite examples of like Queen Anne architecture. Um, I think when people turn off of US-31 into this campus and see what it is, they're just kind of blown away that it's it's sitting here and has been for years. And some of them have not even made the connection. Because all we have is a little green sign that says Bayview. And you don't know if that's a street that you just passed or a, a subdivision. But if Petoskey, Michigan were big enough to have a suburb, that's what we would be, a suburb of Petoskey. It does feel
0: like Brigadoon
2: it does. sometimes yes. up here. In fact, it does exactly what Brigadoon does. It, it only, Bayview is only open six months of the year. So all the people that own here are only able to access their cottages from, I think it's May 1st uh, through late October. And then it literally closes up except for the business office and everything goes away. And, and thus it makes it really, really unique and very special when people are here because it's, you can only access it half a year.
0: You mentioned Chautauqua earlier. That's the summer festival on the banks of Lake Erie in western New York state. You've been to Chautauqua?
2: I've not. I only know of it from my colleagues. And we're one of this sort of movement of Chautauquas. We like to call Chautauqua New York the mothership. I've never been taken into the mothership yet. Mm -hmm. But at some point, it's on my list of, of places to go check out. But there are Chautauquas in Colorado, Uh, There are Chautauquas in Indiana, several in Michigan. They're literally spread throughout the country. I think there are 19 of them existing still.
0: I did not know there were that many places like Chautauqua out there. It feels like a very East Coast thing to me. And I've been to Mm -hmm. Chautauqua. I directed there a couple years ago. I mean, I'm a Midwesterner, so of course I like Bayview more than I like Chautauqua. Chautauqua does have this East Coast feel. It's more moneyed. You literally cannot get onto the grounds unless you buy like a pass for the right. morning or for the day. I mean, there's a wall.
2: Literally, yes. Yes, <laughs> they have built a wall. Uh, and it's, it's a gated community. And so we've, we have asked years and years and years whether or not Bayview should be gated also. And the theory is everybody pays a gate fee to get onto the campus. Once you're onto the campus, then everything that's in, that you experience there is included. Whereas we say, look, come onto the campus, check it out, walk around. And then if you want to partake of lawn bowling or uh, a lecture or a class or a performing arts event in our case, then you, you pay a ticketed uh, price for that. So that, for us, that seems to be the right way to go because we really are all about inviting people onto campus and making sure that they know this is not an exclusive community in which uh, we are.
0: Let's talk about those performing arts. So there are all these different divisions of the music conservatory. Talk us through those divisions.
2: As you mentioned at the beginning, we are one of the oldest uh, continuously operating chamber music festivals in the country. Certainly not the most well-known, but uh, for us to, to have that honor is really is significant and we like to live into that. So that means that we have college students uh, that are coming here to study string quartet music brass quintet, uh, woodwind quintet. Those are our sort of instrumental areas. And we only accept two of each quintet a year and two string quartets. So it's a very, very exclusive, uh, selective, I should say, not exclusive, selective program uh, that we audition for nationally. So students audition, say, I want to come study string quartet music. Because a lot of the programs in the summer that students would have an opportunity to go to from their college studies are focused on orchestral music or on opera or something like that. We are focused really on chamber music when it comes to the instrumental students. On top of that then, we do have an opera program wherein we have um, opera students come in for six weeks and stage a fully fully staged, fully costumed opera with orchestra and the students that are in the chamber music program then play in that orchestra. What's significant about it is that the students that are in that program um, you might say, well, what does that have to do with the chamber music experience? But we're usually doing a reduced orchestration. Um, and so it really becomes like chamber music, even for those people that are playing in the pit orchestra. So they're oftentimes the reed players are playing twice as many notes as they would normally be because they're, they have a part that was written for two people It's being played by one. The strings are usually only maybe two first violins, two seconds, two violas, a cello and a bass. So Everybody's part is really, really significant. There's nowhere to hide in the orchestra. And consequently, then the singers, because these are, you know, by singer standards, they're young, meaning, as you said before, they're graduate, postgraduate. But, you know, the human voice doesn't mature until so much later that that for them to sing over a 50 piece orchestra would not necessarily be a advisable thing at their age. And so they're singing now over a 20 piece orchestra, which is much more doable, but the audience gets the experience of having a fully staged opera with orchestra and they hear all those orchestral colors that are inherent in these beautiful scores. It's opera box score on WNUR
0: 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist here talking with Chris Ludva. He's the artistic director of the Bayview music festival. I'm here this summer working on Carmen, which is the opera for the music conservatory students in voice Let's talk a little bit more about that program. Would you categorize it as a pay-to-sing program? Definitely.
2: Yeah, I think you know, that's. Uh, it always feels kind of trite to call it that, and yet uh, the reality is that you know, when you're studying opera, you have to find a way to get opportunities on the stage. That's the, the best way. You don't, you don't learn what it's like to sing through a full opera in the studio uh, with a piano doing an excerpt or an aria in a recital you learn how to to cut your teeth in opera by doing opera and so the only way with uh, some of the size of programs that students go to at various colleges and universities is for them to get experience outside of those because the smaller ones aren't necessarily going to be able to stage a full opera and so they look for opportunities like Bayview where they can come for the summer and they pay a tuition fee, and we cast them in usually March or April. Uh, they do an audition, uh, I get that out of order. So they they don't they don't pay a tuition fee and then do the audition. That would be a little weird. So they they do an audition. We accept them uh, for the various roles. We t- we tend to double cast, and then they sing in the support roles in their off night. So they're getting two types of experience in the opera. And then once we cast that, we say to them, look, here's the tuition to come, and they decide if they want to do that. And once they sign on the dotted line, then they begin preparing, and they show up in usually late June, and they have approximately six weeks to stage the opera. Pay to sing can be this
0: label, though, which is not pejorative, but like there's definitely less scrupulous pay to sing programs
2: out there. Yeah. I credit our voice faculty uh, with a lot of the success of this program in terms of caretaking for the, for the singers. They do a really great job of, I mean, because it's a smaller program, so you only have 13 or 14 singers a summer that are coming here and four or five voice faculty. And so they're really getting a, a, a really intimate experience with those voice faculty who can really, you know, keep track of what they're doing and make sure that, you know, we're putting people in the right roles for their voices we have great relationships with all of their voice teachers uh, throughout the country. We have really, our voice faculty have done a wonderful job of networking with voice instructors at colleges, particularly those where we are auditioning students. And then, so those teachers know that when the student comes here, they're going to be in a role that's good for their voice. They're not going to be singing over a 60-piece orchestra. We're going to, t- to take good care of them, and we're not going to try to reinvent their technique, you know, which is a big concern for students. I think a student comes to a six-week program and if you didn't have the right faculty member, you could see somebody saying, oh, well, you know, you should learn to sing this way. And they could completely unmake what that voice teacher had done in four years at their college, do just enough, make just enough changes to then send them back to their school. And the voice teacher's like, what the heck? You know, this is my
3: this is my student.
2: So our, our plan here is to say, look, you need role experience. We're going to cast uh, the best people for this. We're going to be in contact with your voice teacher. We're going to make sure that they're supportive of your experience. And then we're going to have you up here to make sure that you get a great first-hand experience with an opera, with a great stage director, with a great conductor, with a good orchestra, you know, all of these pieces that they really need to round out the resume.
0: How is the market for pay-to-sing programs changing? What are you seeing in your applicants? What are you seeing about other pay-to-sings that are your, quote, competitors?
2: Um... I know that uh, for us, one of the greatest challenges is the same one as is for the students. So we have a bottom line we have to meet. We have this beautiful facility that we have to keep up. And one of the things is you can't possibly charge enough student tuition to maintain all of those buildings unless you're going to just, you know, hack into them with five, six thousand dollar fees. But we know that students are they're not just paying to come here to be in these roles. They're giving up an opportunity to work somewhere else during that time so it's kind of a double whammy in terms of what a student is sacrificing to come up here so i would say that we do see that these programs are getting more competitive we see other programs that are raising their rates um even higher so that you're only attracting the richest students to the roles and fortunately bayview has a really wonderful community of supporters that believes in the not just the educational but the emotional um experience of being in this kind of a program this kind of environment and so the people that live here have really generously sponsored and most of our singers only end up paying between fifteen hundred and two thousand dollars to come for six weeks including their their tuition their room their board their voice lessons their coachings their fight coachings their you know everything except for the rental of a paddleboard if they happen to get out of the studio for a little bit of time so it's We feel really good about the value that we're able to provide and I would say that I do see the industry changing. I think we're seeing fewer people major in music now for obvious reasons as the economy changes Um, and therefore there's more competition for those students that are coming to these programs but um, as I said I think the ones that are staying with it really feel like it's a God-given calling that this is where I need to be, this is what I need to be doing and they just find a way to make it work. After the
0: break, Chris tells me about the less glamorous side of running the Bayview Music Festival. Stick around, it's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM.
1: Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this.
2: Wake up at 5 to give Dad his medicine. Every day I wake up at 5 to give dad his medicine. At 6, I make his breakfast. Every day I wake up at 5 to give dad his medicine. At 6, I make his breakfast. At 7, I shower. Every day I wake for up For
1: those five. caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a community to help us better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Tobias Wright, Dan Oliver, the man
0: Camacho. Hey, welcome back to the show! Thanks for joining us tonight, George Cedarquist. Here on Opera Box Score on WNUR eighty nine point three FM. I'm hanging out with Chris Ludva, who's the artistic director of the Bayview Music Festival. You know where Petoskey is? Probably not. Go find it on a map. Bayview might not even be on that map. It is the most wonderful little jewel of a summer program built on the Chautauqua, New York model. Hey, Chris, thanks again for being on our show. Thanks for having me. I joke because I call you the hardest working artistic director in
2: showbiz. Can you just give me an estimate of how many emails you get every day? I'm gonna say in high season when we're up here for the eight weeks of the festival, probably 210 a day, <laughs> um, and so it's a it's a grueling job. We like to joke and say that the only reason any of us come back and stay with this thing is that it's a two month festival, and then the other ten months of the year allow you to forget how hard you were worked for two months, and then you come back and you do it again, and then you remember, and so it's. Um, That's such know.
0: a lie though, because you and I were talking back and basically in cuffs in November, <laughs> right and you're you're a single man operation at that point, right, like when you and I were doing contracts talking about casting repertoire to build this Carmen, which we're doing now in july i mean you were you were on the clock
2: yeah, so once Bayview shuts down, uh, its administrative offices stay open, but that really serves just the membership and at that point it's just me and and our voice faculty will submit repertoire for concerts and things like that but basically yes all of the hiring and the um, negotiating and the recruiting and the auditioning and all that kind of stuff is going to fall on me and then like I said our voice faculty jump in when it comes to auditions because they want to make sure that they you know they have a vested interest in who's coming here and many of them uh, have their students apply to come and so they want to make sure they're advocating for them and that they're hearing really what the talent is out there so that when we put up a show like Carmen, uh, that they can feel good about the cast that we put on stage here.
0: I get emails from you that have been sent at 5 o'clock in the morning. You are constantly putting out fires. I found you vacuuming the rooms that other faculty members are going to move in. But what's the less glamorous part?
2: (laughs) Well, the uh, the vacuuming was definitely a a new we um we have to hire a kitchen staff every year and people always say, "What well, does that fall on you?" And I said, "Well, yeah, who else is going to hire?" I mean, it's not artistic to be to be really clear. There's nothing artistic about hiring a kitchen staff, um, but it's part of the program and and it's the kind of thing that you know any of us that are producers in art know that what it ultimately boils down to is that you're doing all of it. I mean, Sondheim's putting it together song, you know, nailed it. It's like you just, you know that all of these things are having to happen, and because you love the art so much, you find ways to do it. So when the chef, when you have to fire a chef, the chef leaves, and you know that the next chef is on a flight coming in two hours later, you just say to your family, hey, i got to run a real quick errand, and you go over there and you find a vacuum, and you start vacuuming, and you change the sheets out, and you... You know, get busy because it's a Sunday afternoon and the, the staff isn't in and they're not going to do it. And But it's all about just taking pride in your, in your work. You're a conductor in your own right. You're a tenor. Have you sung opera? Uh, I sh- wanted to be an opera singer when I first... Well, let me back up. First, I wanted to be the next Barry Manilow. But then, as my family said, really one of those was enough. And uh, <laughs> no slam against Barry. I love Barry, you know. Uh, but... Uh, I thought, okay, well, maybe i would go into opera. But I really found that the, um, I mean, I don't know if I would have had the voice for it anyway, uh, but I found that the isolation of the number of hours you have to prepare and practice in the room alone and the itinerant lifestyle of being a singer was, you know, I, I wanted to have a family. It was important to me. And so none of that really jived for me. And so I thought, well, being a conductor and or arts administrator was a little more stability uh, and it's proven to be true. It's been a wonderful existence so far.
0: Do you know performing artists that have families and also feel a sense of success artistically and professionally? This is a question. Present company with. excluded, or yeah.
2: we're living the dream, baby. <laughs> um, do, you yeah. I, do you know what I mean? Like, it's hard to find. I'm going to say it's unique. I know that uh, the ones that I know that are both touring singers really work at it. And there's a lot of, I think it helps when they, A, are married to an artist in some level, you know, because only an artist would understand the insane kind of things that we do um, in order to make art happen. Uh, But on the other hand, then you're also more likely to be like two artist personalities, which is always interesting as well, like a couple of right, right individuals. And how does that all work out? So I just think the people that really are successful at raising a family or having a family um, and that I would imply just, you know, people that are married uh, or partnered, or whatever. It just, like anything, it takes work and it takes intention. And I think you have to be willing to uh, balance things and be willing to sacrifice. I mean, you mentioned the 5 o'clock emails that come in in the morning or the ones that come out at 1130 at night. And I feel like, you know, those are the, those are the sacrifices of time that I'm willing to make so that I can be a good father, good husband, whatever it is. At other times in the day when my family needs me so I think it's it's like anything you we will sacrifice whatever we want to sacrifice for the things that really matter to us and you know if you approach it in a an intentional full-on way I think you can be successful but it's not an industry that's that's kind to um, marriages or partnerships or things like that either it's it's hard so do you still follow the, the opera world
0: I mean, do you do you watch productions? do you go to the met h d broadcasts?
2: do you read opera news? like how tapped in are you probably to the opera world? probably less than I should be? I'm probably more tapped in the musical theater world in the presenting world, I think uh than I am directly to opera um you know we lived in Cleveland for three five years, and that was great in terms of the orchestra, but you know even Cleveland being a music town didn't have a huge opera. You know program, uh, I think if we lived in a city like Chicago, where there was something like that, of course, being in Indiana, uh we had tremendous, tremendous opera opportunities and when I was there, that I would take advantage of this
0: is in Bloomington, but, yeah. Indiana, yeah, of course, I mean, oh my goodness it it's got to be the nation's top
2: It's just incredible when you think about opera. the number of when you see their brochure come out and you go, it was like ten or twelve fully staged operas in this state-of-the-art, still state-of-the-art, you know, house that's the Musical Arts Center. It's it's a real, you know, it's, I, it's I'm very proud of my Indiana roots. That's where you're from? Well, really? I grew up in Cincinnati. Okay. But I did three degrees at Indiana, uh, probably two of which, you know, should have been done in Indiana, and the third one probably should have gone somewhere else and diversified my portfolio. But it's really hard when you go to a school like that and you see the resources that are there... And you go there's so many opportunities in this one place it's like it's like being in a major metropolitan area, so you know if you work in that kind of environment, you could work in four or five different uh, places and never have to move. whereas if you 're in a smaller town, you know you 're limited. you have to travel then because you know if the town's lucky enough to even produce opera, you know otherwise then you have to find other places that have the resources to to pull it off. I was going to ask you how you think the Let's listen to the
0: bells of Bayview. This is charming,
2: yes. Picture the lovely waters of Lake Michigan. (laughs) The tree-lined campus. (laughs) There are bells in Bayview that go off uh, periodically through the day. It's kind of the old world charm. And I'll just share a quick story while while they're ringing. They used to be on the ground. And because Bayview has 400 cottages on it, and in those cottages probably 150 of them have families with young kids the joke was that the kids would find the bells when they were down on the ground they used to ring them at various times of day and night in bayview much to the chagrin of all of the the patrons and the residents of bayview and so it only took them like 50 years but eventually they took said bells and mounted them 30 feet in the air in a big tower uh to keep the children away from them
0: and there's also this carillon yes right
2: oh yes so so you'll be walking along you'll hear the strains of some enchanted evening or something like that uh played by a carillon
0: i was going to ask you this question about opera which was how is the art form changing now but i'm going to ask you that instead about musical theater because you're Mm -hmm. more tapped into that in your opinion
2: how is the form of musical theater changing today Mm. Well, I think what I uh, see that I think is you know most encouraging. I mean, everybody knows the breakthrough success of a show like Hamilton, you know. And I feel like, for me, uh, I've always been drawn to uh, historical fiction. So a show like Hamilton or Ragtime or Les Mis that are based in uh, not just a story about a time period, but in literal literal real characters, people, all that kind of stuff. I think are I think we're seeing more of that and I think we'll continue to see more of that as we go forward. Um, I think the, the inequities that exist in our society today are such that, I mean, you and I talked about this when we were talking about Pippin and Carmen both. It's like, if you can't use your art form to somehow, if not make a statement, then at least examine what's happening in your world, um, then I feel like it's somewhat irresponsible. I don't know that I can just make music simply for entertainment anymore um there's just too much disparity between the wealthy and the not wealthy or the uh you know people that live in in areas of town where they don't have opportunities that we have in other areas of the town i just i feel like so much of what we do has to be to elevate and um educate people about the human condition in hopes that they will act somehow so i see a move toward um more intimate uh, just as we see in the performing arts world, more intimate, more close up, more connective. What I worry about is how that, if you're not in one of the big houses, whether it's opera or musical theater, how do you produce it if it's not, it's either like shoestring or complete grassroots effort, which can be really, really powerful stuff, or it's, you have to be in a big house with huge resources. Those things in the middle, I worry about what will happen to those, you know, where, where, Let's say you're in a community that can't afford to bring a touring show in. And let's say you're, you can't, um, you're not aware of a grassroots show that you can produce. Well, how do you, in those communities that need art and need the statements and the message and the education that art, musical theater art brings, how does a town like that bring that in in the future? And I don't know. For those mid-sized, house, mid-sized houses, I don't know how that will work. So that's one of the things I'm most nervous about going forward. Um, but, you know, time will tell. Chris Ludva, Artistic Director of the Bayview Music Festival. Hey,
0: thanks so much for your time hanging out with us. Good to be here. Thanks.
1: Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score.
0: All right, welcome back to the show Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist here doing the last pre-recorded solo show for this summer. We're back live right here on NUR next Monday night. Thanks again, Chris Ludva, for doing the interview, representing the Bayview Music Festival. It's been great being at the festival. I've been working on this production of Carmen. It's been a blast. Great singers, great concept. I love it up here. Thanks to Mathen Black, who contributes to the show every so often, sends me some stuff via email, sends me links, is on the show sometimes, he's got his own podcast, doing the work. He shared with me a clip from last week he found on the Nerdist website. Nerdist, don't really know how to describe Nerdist, it's just the craziest collection of pictures, videos, sound, articles, all of it usually very, very funny, Mathin is On the site regularly, I guess. I don't spend too much time on there. He sent me an audio clip with an interview with Jim Jeffries, the comedian. He's Australian, and he has a show on Comedy Central now. It's called The Jim Jeffries Show. It is similar to The Daily Show in that it's Jim Jeffries looking at the week's news, making fun of it, stating the obvious, but doing it in a very funny way. He's good at what he does. The Australian accent helps, I think, make him funnier, but he's got a great comic sense. I've seen some of his stand-up on YouTube as well, and he is very funny. He was doing an interview on the podcast, and he talks about his career, the early parts of his career, really, when he was training, actually, back in Australia. Part of that training was as a singer, and check out what he had to say about doing opera.
3: Or you're singing in Italy or something. It's like you're paid for by the government. It's a subsidised art form these days. At least in Australia, it is. You know, they can't they can't make their money back on the shows, and the shows only run for a couple of weeks. See something like like uh, over here, you can have a purpose built set for something like *Charlie in the Chocolate Factory*. Right, but that set takes eight months to pay off, and then they're into profit. Opera's run for two weeks. They can never There's pay the fuck. It's no so, yeah. subsidized by the government because we feel like this is an art form we should keep. Right. But in reality, in 100 years, opera will be gone. Well, the other, prob- I mean, the other problem I would imagine is sort of what you were going through, which is you would have to maintain like, – you're almost a prisoner of your own throat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my mate, he's just – he scales every day and he's this and he's that, and it's that real – here we are, that type of thing, you know, <laughs> where they have to speak like this, you know, and he does all that stuff all day, you know. That's a pain in the ass, you know. Or before shows, you can't really talk. I would imagine. Well, I used to, I used to when we did operas at university you know, because I did musical theatre and then I did operas as a second course. Um, uh, when we did operas, I, I didn't even know what I was saying. We meant to learn like do an hour of Italian and an hour of German every week and all that type of stuff, but I used to just go down to the library and rent a CD of that opera, and then just impersonate whatever the diction that he said. Yeah, That's the words, I guess. And then I go, is this a love song? All right, brilliant. That's all you need to know. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I don't think ABBA knew what English words were when they had all the hit songs. Yeah, yeah. You know, ABBA's more popular in Australia than anywhere on Earth.
0: Because we're doing the live show, I had to edit out some of the swear words that Jim Jeffries drops... They beeped them out on Comedy Central, by the way. I mean, they did that with Jon Stewart as well. He makes some interesting points. I don't agree with any of them at all. He says that we feel like we should keep this art form going, and that's why we subsidize it. We subsidize the arts, and when I say we, I don't mean the U.S., because clearly we know there is not a lot of subsidy for the arts. He's talking about Australia. You could say the same thing about Europe as well. We subsidize opera because it's important, and... He makes the point that in musical theater, you can run shows for months, but he contradicts himself when he goes on to talk about how hard it is to sing opera. Clearly, he wasn't up to the task, right? So he reveals how much training it takes to become an opera singer. He then makes that criticism and saying, that's why these operas can't run for long periods of time, because you can't get singers to sing more than a number of shows over the space of a couple weeks. So I feel like his, his argument is convoluted in a way. This is difficult stuff. Let me tell you something. I'm taking voice lessons right now, actually, up here in Bayview. I, I need to sing for some other stuff that I do in my life. And I have such a deep appreciation now for how difficult it is to sing and to project and to make great sound. I'm not even talking about acting while you're doing it or moving on stage. This is very, very difficult. And I think Jeffries is highlighting that when he's admitting that, that he failed at becoming specifically an opera singer. It's tough. Yes, it's a different language. You have to do the work. You have to put in the hours. It would help to know what you're singing about in order to have a convincing portrayal. <laughs> You'd be surprised. How many singers I work with haven't done that work. As far as his comment about opera not being around in 100 years, well, hey, let's hope we're all around in 100 years if the Trump administration hasn't either drowned us through the ignorance of climate change or they haven't bombed us from North Korea. There's no reason really to believe that opera won't be here in a hundred years i think what jeffries means i'm going to put words in his mouth apologies i think a better way to put it is that opera is going to be different in a hundred years and that's not a traditionally original idea look at orfeo 1600 monteverdi opera changed between 1600 and 1700 it changed between 1700 and 1800 with Handel and Mozart, and it changed between 1800 and 1900. Rossini, Verdi, Wagner, it's changed in the 20th century, it's changing in the 21st century. So, what we know as opera now is not going to be what opera is in 100 years. Nor should it be. The art form should evolve. We should be doing new things with it. It will be around in 100 years. It's going to be something different, it's going to be something as immediate as ever, which is what the definition of good art is. All good art is about the present moment. Check out the podcast on Nerdist.com. We'll put a link on our website, operaboxscore.com. You can let us know what you think about opera in the next hundred years. Email us, operaboxscore@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You should probably watch the Jim Jeffries show on Comedy Central as well. He just got another 10 episodes of that. So if you still have time after watching Tosh.0 oh and The Daily Show, check it out. Two-minute drill coming up next.
1: Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Score. More, right after this.
2: Wake up at 5 to give dad his medicine. Every day I wake up at 5 to give dad his medicine. At 6, I make his breakfast. Every day I wake up at 5 to give dad his medicine. At 6, I make his breakfast. At 7, I shower. Every day I wake up For
1: at those five. caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a community to help us better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. This just in the two minute drill.
0: Time now for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from Opera Land in the past week in two minutes tops. South African tenor Levy. Capane and Romanian soprano Adela Zaharia were the first prize winners of this year's Operalia competition, which is run by Placido Domingo. Past winners of the top prize include Anthony Roth Costanzo, Susanna Phillips, Erwin Schrott, Sonia Yoncheva, and Pretty Yende. Daniel Lipton, 76, has resigned as Artistic Director of Opera Tampa, effective immediately. He succeeded Anton Coppola in 2012 when Coppola was 95. Lipton, who had a year left on his contract, said he wants to pursue new projects. The Los Angeles Philharmonic has announced its next set of members of the Dudamel Fellowship program in conducting. They are Tianyin Lu, Ruth Reinhardt, and Jonathan Hayward. Heading overseas, next year's new Lohengrin production at Bayreuth will feature Roberto Alagna as the hero and Anya Harteros as Elsa? Hartiros replaces Anna Trebko, the original choice of conductor Christian Tielemann. Valtrout Meyer returns as Ortrud after an incredibly long absence. Georg Zeppenfeld sings Ken Heinrich, and Thomas Konitsny is Telramud. The show will be staged by Bayreuth's first American director, Yval Sharon. Katrina Morrison, the winner of the BBC Cardiff Singer of the World competition, has signed an exclusive contract with London firm Rayfield Allied to be her representatives. Morrison turned heads when she went from being the wild card finalist in the competition this summer to suddenly winning the whole thing. And on this day, British stage designer Ralph Katai was born in 1924, and Hungarian composer, pianist, and conductor Franz Liszt died in 1886. That's your two minute drill.
1: Live from Chicago, it's Opera Box Score with George Tobias.
0: It's Opera score on WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist here. Doing the solo show. Last solo show for a while. Last pre-recorded show for a while. We're back live in studio on Monday. Hoping Oliver Camacho, our creative consultant, is going to be joining me for that show. It'll be good to be back. Some good stuff in the two-minute drill this week. Certainly... If there's one thing that the operalia competition shows us, is that the winners are always people to look out for. That list of past winners, Costanzo, Phillips, Schrott, Yoncheva, Yende, among others. Obviously, that's a pretty sick roster. The folks to look out for then this year, Livi Secapane and the Romanian soprano Adela Zaharia, the first prize winners. I will say there's something about this competition that... I just never quite get. Maybe maybe it's because Placido Domingo runs it, and I feel like this is a man who has so many fingers and so many pies. You start to wonder about the quality of the baking. I hope I'm not mixing my metaphors here. Right? He's got Washington National Opera. He's got L.A. Opera. He's got his own career as a singer. He's got his own career as a conductor. He's got the Operalia competition. You just start to wonder... As much as we may think he's doing for opera, you just start to wonder about, do we need some new voices? Do we need some new judges? Do we need some new opinions? And look, nobody is ever going to stack up to the BBC Cardiff Singer of the World competition. That is the big one. It's always going to be the big one. There's other competitions, Richard Tucker Awards, for example. So I can't put my finger on it, but there's just something about Operalia which always gives me pause for thought. I'm not saying it shouldn't happen. I'm just saying I think it's overrated. Heading down to Tampa, Daniel Lipton retiring as the artistic director. Some stuff about here that makes me think twice a little bit. First of all, Lipton's predecessor, Anton Coppola, he retired in 2012 and he was 95. Lipton at 76 is now retiring. It makes you think that there really are nothing but old people in Florida. I don't particularly like Florida, so that's why I'm hating on it. It does make you wonder, is there ever anything that's going to happen there with younger people? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Sarasota Opera is a younger enterprise strange though that Lipton he's got a season left on his contract he's slated to conduct Macbeth Merge Figaro and Barbara Seville in Tampa in 2018 obviously that's not going to happen he has conducted overseas doesn't have a huge overseas career according to The Tampa Bay Times, he has a residence in Germany, so I don't know how he's splitting his time, but in a previous interview for the Tampa Bay Times, he said that his contract with Opera Tampa required him to live there for six months out of the year, and that makes it sound like he didn't want to do that. I don't know how you expect to lead an organization if you're not living there. This article says that Lipton's resignation did not come as a shock that is a quote from the president of the Straatz Center, which is where Opera Tampa is based. Quote, we enjoyed a very nice five years with him, Judith Lisi said. He's a fine conductor, and we wish him well. That's pretty, that's pretty high praise, considering that this guy is uh, leaving a hole here for three shows, the first one of which is in February, in like five months. Lots of good conductors out there to to take over the baton. Are they looking for a long-term replacement? Someone to give the organization some much-needed vision for the future? Again, to its credit, this is a company that was able to go toe-to-toe with Sarasota Opera and establish a reputation for itself, mostly through Anton Coppola's Presence. Be interesting to see who takes over the reins at Opera, Tampa. LA Philharmonic. It's not really an opera thing, but it is a classical music thing. The Dudamel Fellowship Program. This is, of course, Gustavo Dudamel, the conductor's program of helping the next generation of conductors show up. And two of the three winners, Tianyi Lu and Ruth Reinhardt, are women, Sounds like they've taken a page out of the Dallas Opera's book, which, of course, promotes its yearly female conductor's form. That's in November. Totally behind that. Glad to see L.A. Phil following suit. Heading overseas, well, this this is kind of in the middle of the Atlantic because the story is at Bayreuth, where there's a new production of Lohengrin coming for next season. cast has been moved around. A little bit. Nitrebko is out as Elsa von Brabant. Anya Hartiros, who we talked about on this show a couple weeks ago, is in. Roberto Alagna as Lohengrin. Waldhard Meyer as Ortrut. I saw Waldhard Meyer singing Parsifal last year at Berlin at the Staatsoper. She was fantastic. For me, the story here, of course, is the director yuval Sharon all right Yuval Sharon, who I met. He is the artistic director at the industry, a opera company in Los Angeles that is really doing some pretty incredible work article on Sharon in the New York Times, by the way, from earlier last week, I think it was. I was going to put it on the show last week, and then I wasn't feeling it and and um now it's come up again. He's a great director. He's had a lot of success in Europe. He's been in Karlsruhe. He's been I can't remember now where else he's directed in Germany. Can you imagine being the first American director to direct it Bayreuth? This guy's gonna be thirty eight next year, by the way. That is incredible. You're that young you're directing in that venue and you're directing a new production of Lohengrin. This new production replaces Stefan Herrheims' production from a number of years ago where the whole chorus are dressed as rats. Maybe I should find a picture of that. Put it on the website, operaboxscore.com. Let's see if I can find a, a photo of that. It's awesome. The set is like this white metallic box and the whole chorus is dressed as pink. And brown rats. It's amazing. Uh, one of these days I'm going to get to Bayreuth right and I'm going to see a show there. Man, I'm tempted to try and go see this production. I just could not be more proud of this guy for getting this opportunity. It's true that the original director schedule for the grin dropped out, so Sharon is a late replacement. Does that take anything away from him? No. It shows that this guy was in a perfect place, that he developed new work with the industry, and I'm talking about very progressive contemporary opera, out of the opera house, site-specific, immersive, they were, and they're doing it well. He's got that. He's able to get that career going in Germany as well. And then he's tapped by Bayreuth. Katrina Morrison, we talked about her on the show as well a couple weeks ago when we did the Wales is Lovely This Time of Year show. And now she's got a contract with Rayfield Allied, She was the wild card for the Singer of the World competition. And she went from wild card to winner, not just of Singer of the World, but also for the art song competition, which is the related competition as well. I always go back and forth on representatives, managers, agents. I don't have one. I don't really have anything to manage. But always interested to hear from our listeners if they have managers how much they really help. I want to get a manager on the show one of these days. I think that would be very enlightening. British stage designer Ralph Katai born on this day in 1924. Great designer. You can look at his photographs as well. And List died in 19 excuse me, 1886. I don't think he ever wrote any operas. Let's wrap this show up.
1: Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score.
0: All right, time to wrap this show up. Pretty good show. Thanks again to Chris Ludva, our guest. Thanks to Math and Black for the Jim Jeffries clip. Good call, bad call. Uh, My good call is being able to get back into Chicago. It's been great to be in northern Michigan for six weeks. Proud of my work up here doing Pippin and doing Carmen. My first Carmen. It turned out to be easier than I thought. Simply because the conductor and I did a very good cut of the show. We cut Carmen down to 100 minutes. Which... And keeping the story, by the way. There's a lot of fights in that show, too. If you listened to the show last week talking to fight director Nick Desandi, you'll know how many fights we put in that show. I think this production's gonna rear its head somewhere again. I really I really do. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about Opera. The general manager at WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at Voxershorts.com. V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S dot com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Hey there, can you do me a big favor and like our Facebook page? And then I want you to go big or go home, comment on one of our posts. Actually, check out that one post of the pizza commercial where our announcer Norm plays a football coach. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to leave a review. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera all summer long because it ain't even August yet. The OBS is back LIVE Live on Monday, August 7th at 9 p.m. Central, right here on 89.3 for more opera headlines, interviews, and inside their opinions. Argo Radio is up next. This is WNUR FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago Sound Experiment. Hey, it's George Cedarquist again. We are going to overtime on Opera Box Score. I got a few minutes left. I'm going to get to treat you to one of my favorite pieces of music from Bizet's Carmen. It's a production I've been working on this summer. And this piece of music is not sung. This is the entre-act between act three and act four. No singing, just instrumental. But in my production, we have a huge fight sequence staged to this music. And I've kind of fallen in love with it. I want to share it with you on our show. Check it out. (music) BOOM <music> Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Give me 60 more seconds of your time so I can share a secret with you. When I tell people about Opera Box Score, they always ask, "How come we're a live talk radio show, not just a podcast?" The answer? We want to give listeners like you the chance to call into our show and have your opinion heard live on air. It's easy. Stream our show live on wnur.org/popup on Mondays at 9 p.m. Central Time. Then, give us a call during the broadcast with your take on what we're talking about. The number? 847-866-WNUR. Wait, do people even have letters on their phones anymore? 847-866-9687. Talk to you later.